Welcome to episode 10 of the Coys R Us podcast. I told you we'd be back. I told you we would be back, and I didn't lie. We are back um, in the place to be. We've got Joel, which is myself. We've got Ben. We've got Jesse, and Jesse actually brought an interesting guest with him this week. Jesse, who, who have we got with us today? Yeah, Dr. Day, a uh, sports psychologist uh, at Ohio State, one of the biggest universities in the country. Um, also my, known as Mrs. Giorzi, um in the evenings and weekends, my wife. Uh, so uh, Spurs <laughs> fan. Your wife only on weekends and evenings. <laughs> Spurs fan herself. Um, and uh, we're headed to, to London a few days after this episode drops and we'll be doing uh, the tour um, next week. So, um, but yeah, thought, uh, you know, always, always fascinating conversations that I've had with her about the, the mental side of sports and her being way, way, way more clued in um, and researched and learned um, than any of us are. I thought it'd be a good person then to bring on the, the podcast to talk about mental health. Uh, terrific time for, for her. I mean, we've talked about it a lot. She and I have just the absolute perfect time to start a career in mental health and sports because it's never been more um, timely. Uh, timely and popular and, and kind of, uh, you know, still not 100% reduced by any stress, but like a lot more uh, athletes and coaches are, are open to talking about it. Where like, I remember when A-Rod talked about seeing a sports psychologist. I remember when um, uh, Ron Artest talked about seeing a sports psychologist after Lakers won the finals. Like, yeah. I don't remember any of those conversations that when players talk about it now, because it's so common, you know, comparatively to, to what it used to be even 10, 15 years ago. So um, you know, I think, uh, looking forward to Chelsea to talk about, uh, share some, some insight with us and see if our armchair psychologist that we play sometimes on, uh, on Saturdays and Sundays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays, but not Thursdays anymore. Not Thursdays. Um, we'll, uh, we'll see, uh, see if, if she can put some of that, that stuff to the test. I've been talking about you for a while. Anything else I missed? No, I'm, I'm, uh, happy to be here. Excited to chat with y'all. Perfect. So I, I, I think the best place to start here um, before we talk about any mental health stuff is to talk about you being a Spurs fan. And obviously you're married to one who's who's on this podcast. Was it because of Jesse that you started watching Spurs or were you guys Spurs fans before you met? How did you become to start supporting Spurs? We were dating and I was uh, sitting in his apartment one day and I was in the other room and I just hear you know, I don't think I like enough sports. So I'm going to start following soccer and, you know, I think I'm going to be a Spurs fan. And I kind of thought, well, I think I'm in this for the long haul. So (laughs) I guess like, I guess I'm also a Spurs fan. And, um, and so just kind of started watching very passively while doing other things and have found, the team have found the players to be very endearing and likable along the way. Um, and it's hard not to become a fan when it's on your TV all the time. Uh, and then, you know, we got to, to go a handful of years ago and, and kind of being there for a game really kind of sealed the deal of, you know, this is a really fun, fun squad to watch. And so here we are. And I remember actually running into you guys back in, I think it was 2017. Uh, when Spurs did an American tour and they did a uh, exhibition match against City in Nashville. Yes. Um, did you guys get to see the old White Hart Lane or the new stadium? 
we saw the old White Hart Lane. And so next week is when we get to see the new one. Nice. Well, make sure um, you definitely want to get out there for a match at some point. I know it's not going to be any next week. Well, we wanted to talk a little bit about sports psychology today. Um, We know that that's a big conversation right now. Um, A lot of teams, it went kind of from being a taboo to now teams are enlisting sports psychologists. Um, It's something that athletes are talking about a lot more openly. Um, Even thinking about like the last season of Ted Lasso, which is like completely about uh, mental health. Um, How would you, as somebody who's actually in the business of psychology and working with athletes, how would you describe sports psychology um, what does that actually mean? How does it differ from psychology as we, as we already know it? Yeah, sports psychology is kind of the interface of all the aspects that go into being an athlete from the performance side to the human side. So it really spans mental health, um, kind of the worried well, life to day-to-day life stuff, all the way to the performance enhancement side. So you know, it really understands that sport is far more complex and that um, we need specialized trained people to be able to address all of it. Um, And and really the only way that it differs is, you know, we understand athletics as a a unique culture. Um, Sport has its own culture. And so it's understanding how sport impacts mental health in unique ways, how mental health impacts sport in unique ways that just differ a little bit from kind of your average non-athlete person. So like in your role, how does your work intersect with sport? I am full-time in the athletics department at Ohio State. So I spend my days in kind of one-on-one meetings with athletes. So whether that's mental health, whether that is performance work, whether that's consulting with coaches on performance or coaching strategies and tactics to get the best out of their athletes. Um, working with the the team docs, the athletic trainers, the physios, the Brits might call them, um, and, you know, collaborating with those folks, um, sometimes working with the team as a group. So working on whether it's team cohesion and strategies for getting the team to play together better, or, um, you know, just other performance domains, grit, confidence, all those things that, that we hear about, um, you know, my role is to really have a hand in all of those to make sure that we're getting the best out of all of our athletes on and off the field. Um, and then occasionally get to do some different consulting and helping with hiring and firing coaches and, and different stuff like that. So, you know, we really get to have a, a role in all the fun stuff. And so this is like every sport at Ohio state. Yeah. I'm the team psychologist for 14 of our teams, um, including men's soccer, which is super fun. Um, so I have quite a few different, uh, sports that I work with as the team psychologist, but I work with individual athletes from any of our 36 sports. Wow. Okay. So that when you, so primarily you said you're mostly meeting with athletes one-on-one and then you do some group stuff as well. Yep. Are they mostly coming to you with like issues that are affecting the sport or like how much of their conversations with you are based on their role as athletes opposed to just like, working with you as a psychologist in general? I would say that it's probably kind of the first split is 80% mental health related, 20% pure performance. Um, However, of that 80%, at least half of those um, are experiencing issues that are impacting sport also. So the issue is rooted in other life things, but it is impairing their ability to participate fully in their sport. Like you got a problem with a teammate 
Or like my parents are going through, through a yeah, divorce. Just other life and, stuff that's... Yeah, my parents are going through a divorce and I, you know, I'm so anxious when I wake up every morning that I'm throwing up and I can't keep food down. And so I am too tired at practice or I'm super depressed and I just don't care about my sport anymore. Um, and I'm struggling to get out there and perform and, you know, put my heart into it. And so, you know, a lot of times it is stuff that has nothing to do with sport in conversation, but deeply impacts the ability to perform on a day-to-day basis. So let's, let's actually take a step back. Cause I have, I have plenty of questions about this. <laughs> um, how did you actually get into this? Well, I was an athlete who sure could have used a sports psychologist. And so those who can't do teach. Uh, and so I decided that uh, I would become one. I was a, a college diver who was a huge chicken. Um, so not only, you know, so the performance side there, I really could use someone to um, teach me a lot of mental skills, but I also was an injured athlete. So I broke my foot in my, my freshman year and struggled with that and um, engaged in a lot of reckless behaviors that I now know um, as a sports psychologist were, were very related. And so I think had I had a, a sports psychologist to meet with, I think my college experience might've looked um, a little more compliant and uh, rule followy, and uh, I might've had a slightly different experience. So, you know, saw the need for it and decided that that's what I wanted to do. Talk about injuries. And I think that's, that's a big one that we often uh, hear about and, and, and think about, especially um, when guys have like super debilitating injuries, they're out for a year, they're out for six months and then they come back. Um, I think about like, uh, that awful injury uh, that um, Andre Gomez had that time when um, he broke his leg against Spurs um, playing for Everton and then um, was able to, to work his way back, you know, even thinking about like in basketball when Paul George had that awful injury as well, he worked his way back. How much of that is the physical, like I have to get myself back to pro athlete shape versus like, the mental piece of I'm actually have to work myself back to a place where I'm not scared of this happening again. Yeah. The physical part's the easy part. There, there are really straightforward, incredible plans. We have week by week progress. We know when an athlete is rehabilitating a a gnarly injury that, um, you know, we know where they should be at week three. We know where they should be at week eight. We know where they should be at at week 16. Um, but we don't know how they're going to respond mentally. Um, we know that, you know, it's hard to stay engaged, it's hard to stay motivated, especially those really lengthy ones. When you're in your 19th week of rehab, it is hard to be excited to get up and go to rehab, especially when you're starting to feel better, but you're restricted because you might re-injure. And then that, that coming back piece is really hard that, um, we also know that having a fear of re-injury causes you to be more hesitant physically, which actually increases your likelihood of re-injury. Right, right, right. And right. so, you know, we're really working on how do we trust our body? Um, and knowing that, you know, it might happen again, that we have athletes who re-tear the same ACL or who re-sprain the same ankle or, you know, on and on. And so, um, you know, we really are working on some of that blind trust of you have to trust your body to do its job, but you have to also just accept that it might fail you. Um, and, and we, the data also shows us that, you know, some of it's really around ACL tears, but um, you know, it is rare for an athlete to actually be able to come back um, at the same place they were after an injury like that. Now, we're always trying to encourage them to with also holding the information that it's hard to actually be the same player that you were after taking a year of rehab. And so how do we get an athlete to accept that 
we're not trying to get back to what we were. We're trying to get back to the most elite version of what we are now. So is that based on when you say like, it's hard to get back to where you were, is that purely physical? Is it because like you missed a year of your prime is like, what is the reason that people aren't able? Cause we do see it sometimes, but obviously, mm-hmm. as you said, that's very, very rare. What, what is the specifically the reason why it's so hard to get back to where you were? I don't know that there's a, a super concrete answer. I mean, certainly some of it can be that mental aspect. Some of it is, is you have just a, an artificially repaired body in many cases. And so, you know, you're relearning your body, you're relearning your mechanics. Um, you know, there is going to be that, uh, you know, loss of strength and, and change in balance. And, you know, with some of our great sports science, we can mediate some of that. And not everyone's using sports science, you know, to the, to the level they could. And so even if we're thinking about muscular imbalances on the side and stuff like that, you know, there's, there's so many pieces to the puzzle of getting someone back to where they were, that it's hard to make sure you have hit hundred percent on all those pieces. Right. Um, and so, you know, you're just, you're a totally different person. And I mean, any of us, right. Maturity wise, it, you spend a year doing something, not what you love, not what is your main thing. I mean, that changes you a little bit. So right. you know, it's also having to relearn who we are as people and motivation and, and all that stuff. How much of it is also learning your place in the team? Not like you're packing order on a regular starter or I'm playing this many minutes. If it's, you know, I'm, I'm a regular sub or something, but like, just like the stuff that happens if when you're away in rehab, when the guys are making new inside jokes or the, the gals are making new inside jokes in a team or like, the stuff like that, those stories, those experiences that, that we know like groups are bond over shared experiences, injured players often are not as there's, even if they're with the team, they're not with the team in all those same environments. Like how much of that is difficulty in coming back as finding your place in the team's vibe culture, not like literally your place on the field or, or the bench. Yeah, that that's not always necessarily the issue with coming back, but that is the biggest issue with mental health during injury. So feeling separate from the team, feeling away from the team, feeling like an outsider. Um, you know, we've gotten a lot better at having people do rehab on the field and how, you know, next to the team, but you're still next to the team. You're still not out there. You're still not doing the things. And so um, that isolation from the team and being removed is the biggest contributor for the mental health issues during that injury recovery, which again, Poor mental health during recovery can predict recovery, which is going to be not so good if our mental right. health is poor. So often the team is really eager. Now, assuming you were liked, is is eager to welcome you back in. And so coming back into the team and finding your place can be re-energizing and re-motivating if you've gotten through that really hard time of, of being away and separate. I know Ben has been super patient. And he's just like on the sideline, just sitting there, just he's eager and anxious to ask some questions. So I'm going to I'm going to throw it over to him now. Thank you for your patience. I appreciate that, Ben. Oh, no, of course, it was uh, definitely an interesting (laughs) discussion. So uh, one of the things that I've always found kind of interesting is um, just the idea of kind of a player betting into a team, I guess, getting comfortable socially with the team, especially, say, when they're a foreign player. And obviously this is even more um, you know, central to say world football than it is to most American sports. We have players from other countries, you know, young age, just moving abroad, maybe being away from your family, learning a new language, all this kind of stuff. Obviously that would be a huge impact on your social life and you could see the impact in the locker room as well. So I'm just curious 
I, I know that, that that might be a little beyond considering you haven't worked with European players as much or any, I guess maybe you have actually in college though, there must be a lot of people from, so yeah, I'd like to hear your take on that. Yeah, I think working with our international student athletes is one of my favorite groups to work with because of that. It, it's so much, it's so much more complex and so much different. And, you know, certainly here in Ohio, we have student athletes coming from California and they really struggle to adjust. But when we have our athletes from all over the world coming to a new country, um, it, it's really interesting to watch how that works. And with many of my colleagues that do work in international pro sports, we do have some of those same conversations of having to adjust to everything at once, to a new culture, yes, to a new primary language, to new food, to new grocery stores, to new traffic patterns, you know, all of these different things um, that can be really, really hard to do all at the same time while you're trying to perform at an elite level, that if you're just doing that, right, you can totally immerse yourself, but we're also doing that while practicing and traveling and competing. Um, and it really can take a toll. You know, I think one of the things we really have them focus on is creature comforts. How do we find a way to maintain that? Now you see in international sports that players from similar cultures tend to group together. Um, you know, even when you watch some of the HBO Especially shows. Especially by language, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You'll see it in the cafeteria, right? You're sitting with people of the same language. Not that everyone's not working toward that, but it's so much work to even think about that. Um, I have a, an international student that I work with really closely and she got back after being away for three months for, for summer break. And she said to me that um, for the first four days that she's back, she wakes up like thinking in her native language and forgetting that she has to like translate everything. And it takes her a good few days. And she, she'll say, I'm so annoyed when someone comes and talks to me with like in 15 minutes of being awake. I'm so annoyed that they're speaking English. And so this type of thing that's occurring with these, these players who are playing in often primarily English teams, because that's the common language, but having to translate and having to, to do all that mental energy. Um, and so I think that it's a really cool opportunity. Um, I think that it really promotes growth, especially in young athletes. I think they're, the, net, the net positive is far greater, but both the physical and emotional energy drain requires them to then focus on filling their cup more. So those, those athletes have a greater responsibility for taking care of themselves in ways that um, if you're playing in your home country, you don't have to as much because a lot of that filling of your cup happens more naturally, um, which can be really frustrating because on top of this stuff, now I have to put in energy to feel well while being away, you know, and, and so I encourage our international students, you know, cook meals for your teammates of your, your favorite native dishes, you know, set up your room with a lot of native stuff to you. Teach some of your teammates, some of the, the words, even if, I mean, oftentimes it's teach your teammates the swear words in your native language, because that's something that can be fun to bond around. And so, you know, it just, it has to be so much more intentional. It has to be so much more effortful. Um, and it can be fine. Um, assuming the person is, is outgoing enough. You know, I, we really struggle if you're a, a super introvert, um, it's going to be really hard to get acclimated within the team. And that, that can be, um, that can cost someone their, their career, their position on their team. If, if that's something that they're not actively working toward. I think about that yeah. all the time, like that, that language piece, especially thinking about European football, you know, we have guys getting transfers and, and people being bought from one country to another. You've got guys from all types of nationalities on single teams. And I've always thought about like, 
if a guy, you know, Ryan Sessegnon goes to play at Hoffenheim for a year, we just think of it as, oh, he's going to play for some other club. But like, no, that means he's actually going to Germany. Living in Germany. He has to learn German. So he has to, uh, uh, you know, as, to, as, as a 20 year old. Yeah. Right, right. Exactly. That's the big part. Right. Like these are kids being yes. forced in these. I remember watching um, this documentary that uh, that Messi had or it was an interview that he had. And he was talking about like the experience of coming to Barcelona from Argentina. And he was like 16 or something like that. Um, and obviously he's a prodigy, but it's also like. I'm now like having to not live with the rest of my parents. I think he came over with like his dad, but like the rest of his, the family wasn't there. So like you're adjusting to being in a new country, you're adjusting to a new language, you're adjusting to new food, new customs. And on top of all that, you're not even like a fully formed adult yet. Right. Um, and I always wonder too about how does practice work? I know this is probably a silly thing to think about, but like, there are some coaches that don't even speak very good English. I, I don't think Marco Bielsa speaks English at all. And he's been coaching in England for years now. And I, I know you don't work for the Premier League itself, but like, are you ever actually on in practice spaces or in team environments where they're interacting or talking about their sport? And how does that work in terms of being able to actually communicate? Like, how do I learn plays? How do I talk to my to my uh, teammates on the field, like how does any of that actually work? Yeah, at Ohio State fencing is our our best equivalent of that. We have a coach who um, who speaks very um, basic English, and it is really fun to hear stories and to be at practice and watch it because I have no, and he goes back and forth between languages. So he speaks a number of languages, but English is the one he's the worst at. Right. And so he has, uh, we have a lot of international fencers, as you might imagine, if you think about fencing for a second, and um, he'll switch back and forth to the language with whatever athlete that he's talking to. And some of the athletes are bilingual. So even talking to them, he'll switch back and forth. Um, and I have one particular fencer who will show me occasionally like text messages or listen to voice notes. And um, it's really interesting because I can't follow any of it. And I'm like, what? And it's, it's so confusing. But the athletes start to learn the typical things that he says, and they interact with him and can see his gestures and body language. And so um, the athletes have a fine time there at practice, and they know exactly what he's saying and, and talking about, whereas I'm like, what? So I think that when you spend enough time with someone, and certainly those early days, right, are probably like confusing and terrifying of like, what? You're looking around to see what other people are doing, right? Um, but it, it doesn't take that long to really, when you spend that much time with someone, to get a sense for what they're saying, what they mean. Um, and I have found that, uh, particularly, some of the the Central European uh, folks are very gestury, so they use a lot of body language. So you're able to pick up on a lot more um, versus some, some other countries where there isn't as much body language and you are relying on a lot of the verbal directions. Uh, so that can help too, when there's a lot of gesturing and they're motioning and you can kind of get the gist of what you're supposed to do. And when they yell, you just know what tone means to stop and pause and think. Um, but it, it's amazing to me how quickly the athletes pick up on what someone is trying to say, even if they can't understand their words. Well, maybe that's why Conte is such a good coach. He just, 
he's always so expressive. They just know what he's Definitely talking expressive. about. Yeah. <laughs> We've been talking a lot about people like foreign athletes uh, or for foreign, wherever the country they're playing in, they're going to a, a different country they're from, but like, not just about what about people that grew up in that country, but like, what about people that grew up rooting for that team or in the shadow of that team stadium, those kind of things. And, uh, you're familiar with Spurs. He's one of our own. He's one of our own. Harry Kane is one of our own. People like that, or people like LeBron James, who's playing for the Cavs, which, you know, geographically, he wasn't as close as Harry Kane. Like that kind of thing, Obi Toppin, let's go next. But like those type of people that grew up either as fans of the team or, or in the, you know, again, in the, in the neighborhood or in the city that their team grew up of, like that are the most local, that might feel an extra, emphasis on carrying because their friends uh, and their parents and their cousins and their and their families are fans of like is what's that go through like work in Ohio State athletes the people from Columbus I mean people from anywhere in Ohio like if you play in state at Ohio State some part of your family some relative of yours was most likely an Ohio State fan in some sport so is that more pressure do some people handle it better or worse like what are some of the, the 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 things you notice and the things that you see athletes that are that come into a club with local ties or come into a school with local ties? I think that's one thing that there's not a lot of gray in. It either elevates you and motivates you or, or crushes you completely. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of kids that play for their national teams in various sports uh, all over the world and, um, and our, our Ohio kids here at Ohio State. And it either is something where you feel so proud and you feel so confident that this place that I admired so much chose me and so that gives me confidence that if they selected me to be here, then like, I, I feel great and I'm here to do my job and make them proud or, oh my God, like I could embarrass myself and mess everything up. And this pressure is too much. And I'm, I'll never live up to these expectations. I don't see a lot of gray of people that are like, Hey, yeah, it's cool, whatever. Um, and so, you know, we usually see in the pro sports space, right? The cream of the crop, those who can't. Um, and, and they really are able to do that with pride and certainly it adds pressure, but, but like anything, some of us are motivated by pressure and some of us totally collapse under pressure. And so, um, our most elite athletes are the ones that can take that pressure and channel it into confidence, can channel it into positive self-talk, all of these really great mental strategies that allow them to continue to elevate and to elevate the people around them. You know, there's. There's also, if you, if you can come in with that pride and confidence, you know, energy is, is truly contagious in a team. So if I'm coming in there with that, they chose us, I'm here for a reason. And I bring you along in that. It's going to elevate the whole team dynamic of, you know, we are a special group. We are bonded, the brotherhood, those types of things that you hear a lot in sport. Um, and so I think in, in the best of cases, that's what happens. And in the worst of cases, you see someone play for their hometown team for a year and then wonder what happened to that guy. Yeah. Um, and those yep. are the ones who couldn't, couldn't keep up. Yeah. So, uh, going along with something you said there, just, I guess the, uh, the feeling of pressure and some people doing well with it and some people obviously not that leads to the old, you know, the age old, uh, question of bottling it or, you know, of, um, of, uh, of just like being, being the uh, cause of your own demise because you're in your own head too much or like the yips in baseball or the, all those. I mean, the, the yips is a crazy one to me, but I, yeah. I'm curious yeah, just about yeah, choking, about the, the just collapsing mentally. And, and I guess 
I don't know. Is that really ingrained in, in people? Is there a way they, they can overcome that? Is that true? Can it be a team mentality that passes on through the, the culture of the team for decades even? Uh, you know, not asking for a friend, you know, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a few a few pieces there that I can can hop on. Um, you know, one is that the the generational dynamics that you see in a family, and I'm just going to go like put my psychologist hat on real, real big here, um, but you see generational dynamics in families, right? So um, we all can think of, of things within our family that probably came from our great grandparents in some way, right? Whether it's, whether it's generational trauma, whether it's generational pride, whatever it is, we can, we can, we can look at that stuff. Families uh, and teams really operate the same. Now, the difference is a team has a, a quicker turnover than a family. We're not, you know, aren't like dying off every year and being more every year, but um, you know, there, there is that generational pass down. And so a team can be really impacted by players who played years and years and years ago, both positive and negative, which is why when you have um, a bad culture, which is why when you have kind of a player who's a cancer to a team, the ramifications of that last far, far beyond getting rid of that player. Um, and, and I think that there can be a piece of that um, as well with things like the gifts with choking. There's some research um, in Southeast Asian baseball uh, where social support and, and opening up to your teammates and having your teammates support you was the biggest predictor of the resolving of yips in baseball players. So if you were able to talk about it instead of being like, don't say the word, don't say it, don't talk about it. If you could talk about it and your team could like cheer you on, that was the biggest way that it would resolve. If you don't, if it was taboo, don't talk about it. Oh my gosh, it's terrible. Everybody turn away. It tends to, to predict it continuing. And if we, if we go down the mental health road, there's also a lot of evidence, um, particularly in basketball, uh, that a lot of the yips um, can be related to childhood trauma, which is a really interesting thing that's being explored. Um, and again, that social support can really come in. So there are a lot of things that, that a team can promote. And if you have a culture in a team that is supported, if you have a culture in a team that you know, has that brotherhood mentality. We're all here for each other, regardless that there isn't this machoism. There isn't this rub some dirt in it. Don't talk about anything. Everything's rainbow and butterflies, like stay focused, leave it on, leave it off the field. When we avoid that piece, we see far less instances of choking, of yips, of those types of issues. And we just see your regular kind of errors. And we just see your regular type of stuff that we would statistically expect. Um, and so there really is a lot uh, of evidence about those types of things being embedded in that, um, you know, culture of fear. When coaches coach from a culture of fear and punishment, um, we see greater instances of choking, of, of repeat poor performance. Um, certainly, like you want someone who's going to uphold high standards and demand excellence. And when it's done in a, an appropriate way with a little more positive lens, we see far less instances of those because the more afraid you are to mess up, the more likely you are to mess up. So the more afraid I am to, to choke, the more likely I am going to do it. Yeah, and it sounds like yeah. it's a, definitely a kind of a, a top-down um, yeah, environment where the, having a coach is, I mean, we've seen that with Conte, we've seen that with other coaches that come in that seemed like with Jose, it was kind of toxic and we had a lot, a lot of uh, kind last, of. last minute conceded. Didn't we see that coming though? Last minute conceded we, goals. Know I know, I, I think we, I was, I was not happy even the day we got Jose, except for, I guess maybe there for a month or two, he's halfway won me over, but I, <laughs> the whole time you knew what was going to happen or we've seen it with him too many times, yeah. but yeah, very interesting. Thanks. So I think something that I've always struggled with of like quantifying or even properly valuing are some of these, um, 
these keywords or buzzwords that you hear a lot in sports, like, oh, this guy is clutch. Or they talk about like, oh, he has the winning mentality and these guys just don't have it. Like, is there any value in some of that? Or is that just the way that people try to understand? I mean, I, I know we talk about like people having mental blocks, right? Like the yips or, you know, a guy is just not playing the way that he used to play and something must be there. And I think there's value in some of that. But I think sometimes instead of saying like, oh, this team completely bottled the game, like there is sometimes when you just don't play well, <laughs> right? Like it doesn't yeah. always mean that you choked. Blew it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, is, is it always like some of these phrases like choking or being clutch or having a winning mentality are phrases that I've always struggled with because I just think a lot of times it's BS and it's something that like, you know, the pundits uses conjecture to like quantify ways that people win and people lose, but sometimes you just give it a narrative, give it in a narrative. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Framing it. So like as, as someone who actually works in sports psychology, do you think there's value in those phrases? Are those real things? Is there such thing as a player being clutch um, or, or bottling or choking, or are these just made up things that, that we talk about as fans? I think that most of the time, a huge asterisk, most of the time, um, those are lazy phrases that we use and we don't have anything else that we know to say. And I think they're also really detrimental. So if can you say you, that one more time? I, I just want to be able to use this the next time I have an argument about it. They're lazy <laughs> and detrimental. Yeah, I really do. So when we say, oh, well, that was a clutch performance. Okay, so what are we actually saying? That this person really has strong mental skills that they can perform well under pressure that they've probably honed over time and put a lot of effort in? Clutch makes it sound like it's this passive lucky thing. Oh, this person can No, this is someone who likes worked really hard and has probably built the skill set to outperform the people around them. And we also use it when we want to make it sound like we didn't do so bad, like, oh, they're just always clutch. No, they're better than me. They're better than me and and like that's okay. That's okay. In the same way that losing isn't always choking. Now, sometimes, you know, you see someone, you can see, you can see a team kind of fall apart yep. and become less organized. Now, yes. So maybe they're more distracted, but again, when are we defining, like, are we using choking to say that they were mentally fatigued and you could tell that they were tired and worn down and they weren't mentally sharp and they were missing passes? Are we talking about they were distracted are we talking about they were too focused on winning instead of focused on what they need to do to win? What are we saying? But we use those phrases when we are kind of too lazy to think of a more kind of articulate, deep way to talk about what we're seeing. Um, and some of that's because it's common language. Because if I say that, like, we kind of know what each other means. If right. I say, oh, it's clutch, they choked. Versus actually doing a real analysis of what's happening and using actual um, descriptors of what we're seeing. Um, now, again, you know, it's if I... I don't think I could be on TV and try to think of things off the top of my head. And, you know, Jesse can tell you that often I complain about the stuff that they say. I'm like, Oh, that's what you chose to say in that moment. Like there are 20 other things you could have said, but you picked some like little snippet soundbite that means nothing. That's totally me. So, you know, I think that um, it also externalizes things too. So if I say, you know, Oh, our team just totally fell apart. I am externalizing it. Hey, I messed up. I, I didn't complete these passes. I got distracted. I wasn't, I wasn't engaged in the strategy that we talked about. Oh yeah. Just, we just, we just, we just choked. And sometimes you just don't play well, right? Like that's, that's 
don't play well. That's, that's what I work when thing. I work with my teams a lot, you know, and, and they'll come back from a, a tough loss. The first thing I ask the coach is like, did you get outplayed? Like sometimes you're going to get outplayed. Like sometimes they're better than you. Like, can you help me if I'm going to talk to the team? Did they, are, are they a better team? Did they play better than you? Let's start there and just be honest, because if I'm trying to out mental skills, better physical skills, I'm, I have an uphill battle. If they just played better and you just didn't play well, then it's not a mental skills thing. I need to come in and teach. That's for the like strength coach. Like, are we talking stamina or that's for the head coach? Do we talk in technique? Um, but I think it's also easier to attribute it to mental stuff because it couldn't have been that we didn't play well. It couldn't have been that we messed up. It's got to be this other thing. We've got to externalize it in some way. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm guilty of it too. As much as I complain about it, I mean, I think about this past season, um, particularly in the Champions League, uh, just some of the performances that Kareem Benzema put in. And just it seemed like he was always scoring the important goal and like yeah. always coming up in the quote unquote clutch moment. And then it's like, wow, like you just want to use the phrase clutch because you don't really know how else to describe the same guy scoring the important goal week after week. But maybe it's just like he's more he has more stamina at the end of games yeah. when other guys are pl- getting tired he's working he's the right so- guy for the job he yeah. has the talent and skill set to execute in those moments right that he's trusted it means he's trusted it means that he has the skill set to do it it means that he has the confidence to be able to execute that it means that the strategy and the 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 plays if you will are set up to to work with him um and so, yeah, again, a shorthand is to say clutch, but it's, it's having to, to, it's the reason I call it lazy is what are, what are we trying to say by that? Are we giving yeah. him credit? Are we giving the coaches credit for that? Are we giving the teammates credit for being able to set him up well? Um, because there's so much more than goes into that than just like, hey, he's clutch. Um, and, and I mean, I do it too. Um, even though I'm sitting here talking and, you know, saying that it's dumb, I, I do it plenty. But, you know, I do think it's just really thinking about when we use that can we use more words to describe what we're actually seeing and talking about and give credit where credit's due? What I think you brought up something earlier about maybe not even being able to label it as a skill that way Um, in terms of there, obviously there are players that work as hard as they can to create those kinds of situations. And then just think about other walks of life, like say a sniper that can, uh, you know, trains his body to keep his breathing rate low or I mean a myriad of other things from other different competitions. Some people are might be naturally just poised, calm. I mean, that that can be an actual human skill. That's probably also something you could work on with you know different exercises. So, I think I, that, I, I think that's a big a thing that that we also maybe don't think about is there are people that naturally have these mental skills. There are people that are more naturally um, suited for something, and there are people that I have to teach, and we have to work really, really hard to learn that. Um, I have people that come in and the first time I meet with them and they're like, I want to work on mental skills. And I start talking to them like, you have them all, like you, you should teach your teammates. Um, you know, and there are people that are, are really good athletes. I have an, I have an athlete who, um, is the least mentally tough athlete I've ever met. And he has become a world-class athlete and it's really been wild to see. And so, you know, there, there's such a, a combo of physical prowess and mental ability and some people have high both or one or the other. And, you know, both can be cultivated. People just don't often think about cultivating the mental skills. Yeah, so clutch is kind of like a, a lazy shorthand for that kind of thing. Yeah, It's like putting sure. things together. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Justin. One last question, I think, and then we're going to wrap up. Uh, more about, like, 
the emotional side, but just still mental side as if we actually think with our hearts or emotions mm-hmm. with our hearts, but like the emotional aspect of like team dynamics and that like the 19, late 1970s Yankees, um, they say 25 players, 25 Cavs, as in, as in like they literally spent no time with each other outside of the ballpark. They didn't particularly get along with each other. Uh, they fought in the clubhouse, but they won a bunch of World Series. And so there are other teams where you can clearly tell these people absolutely love each other. You can love each other. You can suck at your sport. You can hate each other and be great at your sport or vice versa. Like how important or, or, or what is the role of that? Like, I don't know if culture is the right word. Camaraderie. Yeah, camaraderie, I think, is probably the connection, the camaraderie, the um, like, how important is that? Is that is it something that like you you see that like the teams that you're working with that could have a lot of talent, but if they really don't care for each other um, or don't buy, like obviously there's, you still have to buy in. Even if you hate each other individually, you have to buy into whatever the coach is selling, the system, the, the plan, those kind of things. But how, how critical is that like where sometimes like in, in the Spurs case, like, um, Tenga clearly just never wanted to really be there. Um, there are some people that really, really want to be there. Like people like Eric Romello, we love as Spurs fans, never was the right guy, but like absolutely would die for Tottenham if he had the opportunity and, and may still again one day. But like how much of that is important of like where you care about the people and, and is that, I don't know, the, the real question I'm getting at, like how important <laughs> is caring about each other and the emotional dynamics that go on in a team um, versus just a bunch of really mentally tough and skilled, but people that don't really care about each other. In sports, I could call team cohesion. You guys are really close. Um, <laughs> so there, there's a difference. I, so it's nuanced. So there's a difference between 25 players, 25 cabs, if those players have respect and care for each other. So you don't have to be best friends. You don't have to want to hang out with each other, but you have to have trust, respect, and care for them. Yeah. Um, you don't have to teams that spend all their time together that, that don't have may still not have cohesion. There's difference between socializing and, and on the field cohesion. Um, and so it's, it's that I may not want to go out to dinner with you, but I respect the heck out of your skills and I'm going to pass to you because I trust you. Um, and when we leave, I'm going to pat you on the back and say, great, I don't want to meet your family. Like we're good. And there is then the difference between we have bad blood. I think you're a piece of crap and I'm, I'm never going to pass to you or I'm only going to in a pinch. And so the team cohesion. So, I mean, sure. Ideally it's cohesive and the culture yeah. is family and we would, you know, go to bat for each other. Um, but I don't, I don't know that I think that's always necessary. Um, and I, again, you can have cohesion and low talent, you know, it's, it's a, a very much a, an equation. Um, but I, I think that you can, perform really well as long as the basic foundation of trust, respect, and like care can occur. And you believe that your teammates are talented, that they're good people, that we're all on the same page. Um, again, which is very different than clicking interpersonally. So I think that's the line, um, you know, that, that we want to think about that you can go out and get drunk every off night you want. If I, which also can cause more problems, right? Because now I, you did this thing or like you kissed my girl and we yeah, have bigger issues. Oh man. Right. So it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you need team cohesion, but that doesn't mean brotherhood. That doesn't mean one big family. Yeah. It just means a basic level of trust, understanding, and respect. 
Well, I know we're, we're running short on time um, and we're going to get ready to wrap up here. I, I, I did have one more thing I wanted to bring up and I feel like it would be um, negligent for me not to bring it up. Um, just thinking about the climate that we're in right now, where, as we said at the top of the podcast, like mental health is a lot more in the conversation. Athletes are more comfortable talking about their own struggles with mental health. Most teams have sports psychologists. That was not a thing 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and I also wonder about the way that that affects athletes um, and coaches in sport, right? So I think, for instance, we talked earlier about Jose, right? Jose came up in a very different time uh, with a di very different type of player when he was uh, coaching in the 90s and the early 2000s. And you even see it sometimes in, in, in other sports like basketball, where, you know, a lot of these kids that are in the NBA now are 19, 20 years old. And I think the, the kids today that are professional athletes uh, grew up in a very different time, a very different era. Uh, they grew up with social media. They grew up with different norms around mental health. Um, and I think sometimes the way that we think about sports in the 90s, where you had coaches that were yellers and screamers, that doesn't always really work the same way. Um, I, I would be interested to hear your thoughts about that in terms of the direction of sports with, with the current mental health uh, conversation. But also, how do you think um, that changes generationally from like the 18 year old athlete now versus the 37 year old veteran. If you want a Gen Z athlete, um, one-on-one, Dr. Day that is, yeah. One of my favorite areas to talk about, you know, I think we're, we are, um, we are quickly seeing old school coaching, uh, fall by the wayside. And if the coaches aren't, aren't, aren't adjusting, they're losing jobs. And we're seeing it happen across all sports at all levels that um, people that are stuck in old school coaching with our, our up and coming athletes are, are not going to be long for their jobs, which is creating a lot of anxiety and stress for coaches. I empathize with them a lot, but they have to change. I, there's a book called Gentelligence by um, one of my favorite colleagues, Megan Gerhardt, that like I am obsessed with and I give to every coach and every like administrator that I work with because you know, our job, our job as anyone who isn't the athlete is to get the best performance out of an athlete. At the end of the day, that's what anybody who is working with an athlete in any, any fashion is trying to do. And so, you know, something that some of our older school coaches will tell me is, well, why should I have to change? Maybe they just need to toughen up and they need to understand. And I always say like, yeah, that sounds great, but your job is actually to get them to perform. Right. So yeah. you're going to need to adjust to them. Um, and what's really cool about Gen Z and, and, and even some of our younger millennials is they don't care. They're demanding people that will see them as people. They're demanding being seen um, for their individuality. They're demanding people that will interact with them in consideration of their mental health. And so, you know, there will be people that will be stuck in their ways. And again, they won't be coaching for, for a whole lot longer as we really see the tides turn. I think as mental health has become less stigmatized, um, athletes are more empowered to talk about it and to demand their needs be met and that they're attended to for these organizations that they're, they're playing for. Um, and so the landscape is changing and, and it's going to be interesting to see, you know, I certainly think we have to maintain the balance of what is mental toughness and, and, and where do we, um, build resiliency skills? Because if we don't also build resilience, 
then the mental health piece can reduce our ability to perform for sure. So, you know, I think that that's, that's where sport trained psychologists come in is being able to both address mental health while maintaining resiliency and high level of performance and occasionally compartmentalization of being able to say, all right, we're talking about some heavy stuff and you got a championship game coming up or we've right. got, you know, the playoffs. So, um, you know, it, it certainly is going to be a fine line and continue to be, but we're only going to see people talking more and more about it. Um, you know, the, the mental health conversation isn't going anywhere anytime soon, which is great for my job. Yeah, security. it's great. Shouldn't. It? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining the podcast, Dr. Chelsea Day. We will have some more conversations like these uh, for the rest of the off season. And even after the season starts, I think it's important for us to have some, some conversations outside of just game recaps. And so um, we will continue to try to have some guests on. If, if you're interested in, in joining the pod or if you know someone who might be a good guest, please free, feel free to reach out to us. We can be reached at the Coys R Us podcast. We're on Twitter at Coys R Us podcast. And with that, come on, you Spurs. Come on, you Spurs. Get well, Timmy.